Lent every year, these 40 days leading to Easter, draws us back into the desert wilderness with Jesus. Into the wilderness is where the Spirit drove Jesus after his baptism as beloved. So we return there with him, letting the wilderness of our current lives form us, as it did for Jesus, as beloved, and transform us, as it did for Jesus, into who we are and what we are to do. Yet this Lent, we have to ask ourselves, haven't we had a whole year of wilderness already? And yes, yes, we have, which is why this Lent 2021 at Sawhouse, we let the wilderness of this year be with us by drawing us closer together so we can witness to each other's pain and grief we carry. And so our Lenten journey is called, I Need a Witness. We all need a witness to be close enough to hear our pain. We will follow the lead of the Black Church in America, how historically the Black Church places such importance on the function of witness or testimony, stories shared from the pulpit and also from the sofa or kitchen table. As someone shares their story of pain, there's the audible response of testify and can I get a witness? Here, this sharing and witnessing performs two functions. First, it affirms their pain, trials, or suffering as real and not imagined. Second, it affirms God's presence and grace as real and not imagined. And the sharing then, presence of pain and the presence of God, both are witnessed. To aid you in this journey, you can print off your own Lenten bingo card offering daily opportunities to ask, how am I showing up with others today? Which closes the distance between us and creates space to witness. It is this daily practice that will form us this Lent. And each Sunday will draw us closer to the cross and empty tomb as we explore first how we witness to our own pain and then to witnessing to the pain of others. And finally, that pain suffered by Christ for the world. We'll see how the pain is real and not imagined and that God's grace and presence is real and not imagined too. So take a deep breath and let's witness in the wilderness together. In Sturgis, South Dakota, there is a population of know, some 6,000 people. <clears throat> and by all accounts, this is a sleepy little town near the foothills of nowhere, except for one week of each summer. At the beginning of August, about a half a million people on motorcycles converge upon this little hamlet for the mother of all motorcycle rallies. And in most years, uh, you'll find like just the most amazing bikes, you know, the fastest bikes, uh, the newest, shiniest, loudest, most tricked out bikes in the world, all gathered together in one place for one crazy week. Now, I've always wanted a motorcycle, something really mean looking, something that like, when, you, when you rev it up, car alarms go off all down the block, you know? Because it's, it is true what they say. Four wheels might move the body, but two wheels, two wheels moves the soul. There's just nothing like the feeling of riding a motorcycle, the road whizzing past you, only inches below you, just cutting through the warm summer air. Oh, it just feels like freedom. 
I kind of like to own a motorcycle, maybe even ride it into Sturgis on that first week of August. But I've taken my motorcycle licensing test twice and failed both times. I used to own a scooter. Um, it was this little scooter uh, called a twist and go. And people would look at it and say, oh, that's cute. I was not going for cute. <laughs> I mean, this thing would uh, barely make it up to 50 miles per hour going down a steep hill. And let's just say that I was not about to take it to Sturgis. Because if you didn't already know this, there's a sharp divide between those who ride hogs and those who ride piglets. <laughs> and there's this, there's even like this little secret hand signal between motorcyclists. I mean, maybe you've, you've seen this before. Um, two motorcycles are driving past one another on a street and, and one rider, you know, lifts their left hand uh, from the handlebars and points down with a couple fingers. Have you ever seen this before? It's kind of like this nonchalant um, thing that they do. And from the outside, I always imagine that like, you know, some one of them saying, hey, nice bike. And the other one saying, thanks, live free or die. Okay, I will. But when I rode my twist and go scooter, I would do this to, to other motorcyclists and um, I never got a wave back. Believe me, I tried. <laughs> and I hear that there's like, there's other clubs that have secret handshakes too, like Vita Beatles or Jeeps. And uh, come to find out, um, they would not wave back at me either. <laughs> So some bikers, they'd smile, they'd give me a little token wave, but they were kind of like, yeah, right. So I even got some uh, less than polite hand signals too. It was obvious that my twist and go scooter was not impressing anyone with a motorcycle. So now, with that story in mind, it was the week before Passover in Jerusalem. The city was crammed with people from all over. And because Jerusalem, Jerusalem is where it all takes place. All the action takes place in Jerusalem. And this, this was the week that celebrated what the Romans feared worst, revolt. Passover fueled the hope that God was going to do to the Romans exactly what God had done to the Egyptians that enslaved their ancestors, you know, with huge signs, wonders, and with a mighty outstretched arm, God would someday send those Romans back to Italy with their tail between their legs. But who, who would God choose to be this new warrior king? Who would God send? So into all of these expectations, enter Jesus's gang. And they are so excited about entering the city. They're, they're telling everyone, this guy is it. This guy is the one that you've been waiting for. He's coming. Come on, he's coming. And the crowd is just whipped into this frenzy. Can you see it now? I mean, people, they're cutting off branches from trees. They're throwing them down on the road like he's royalty. I mean, this whole like palm branch thing basically meant we're laying out a red carpet for you to walk down. People are literally taking off their clothes and throwing them down where Jesus will be riding in. I mean, like Jesus is bigger than the Beatles. 
<laughs> it's Jesus mania. The crowd is amped up. And then he makes his grand entrance. Here comes the king. Not on a stallion, not on a war horse. He's not on a chariot. He's on a donkey. He's coming into Sturgis on a scooter. 50 cc's, you know, it gets great gas mileage, you know. Kind of cute. Probably not going to win any races at Sturgis. Might get beat up, laughed out of town, or worse. And the whole crowd is saying, hooray, hooray. Wait, what? Uh, who is this guy? I mean, I thought this was like the powerful miracle man guy. Like, who? And Eugene Peterson's version of the Gospel of Matthew says that all of Jerusalem was unnerved. One thing I know about crowds is they don't like to be unnerved. I mean, crowds like their nerves exactly where they are. But what's so unnerving? What's so unnerving about this? You know, what was so unnerving, I think, is that this was the wrong story. Jesus was not following the script. Let me tell you what I mean by this. And I got to tell you this. I got to warn you that once I tell you this, I can't untell you this. And once I tell you this, I'm going to ruin almost every action adventure movie that you have ever seen in the past and will ever see in the future. So if you want to like just turn off your device right now, uh, it's the only way to preserve thousands of hours of entertainment for you. Okay. So just so you know, like you have been warned. There's a story and you know this story by heart. And it's, the, it's, it's just like one of the oldest, continuously repeated stories in the world. And it has a name. Uh, the theologian Walter Wink calls it the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence. This is a story that every domination society tells. And it's told to uphold the conviction that violence saves, that war brings peace, and that might makes right. If violence is what you turn to when everything else fails, then violence certainly functions as the American God. It, can, it just demands from its devotees an absolute obedience unto death. And the myth of redemptive violence, not Christianity, not Judaism, not Islam, is the dominant religion of our society. And all empires, for that matter. And I know, I know, I know, you still don't believe me, okay? But let me first describe this story to you, and then you decide if I'm lying or not, okay? So here, let's look at an example. And uh, hopefully this is one that's not copywritten. So um, anybody remember Popeye the Sailor Man? Every episode... Uh, every single one had the exact same story. And it goes like this. Okay, so uh, Bluto abducts Popeye's girlfriend, Olive Oil. Uh, Popeye then tries to rescue her, 
But Bluto beats the snot out of Popeye while Olive Oil uh, helplessly wrings her hands. And then when it seems like everything's lost, Popeye discovers this can of spinach filled with power, destroys the villain, saves his beloved. And that's it. That's every single time, every show. There's no variation to this theme, okay? And here's what else doesn't happen. They never learn or grow from their experiences. They never like sit down and discuss their differences. Olive oil's humanity is never honored. <laughs> they just keep rehashing the same story over and over again. But think about it. Isn't that the same basic story of every single action, adventure, like superhero, cop show, uh, Western, spy thriller? I mean, nearly every single movie ever made. I mean, the details, the details might change, but the plot is so predictable. So here's what Wink says. Um, an indestructible, here's how he describes this plot line. Are you ready? Uh, so watch, watch this. Um, an indestructible hero is first doggedly opposed to an irreformably, so irreformable, that's important, and equally indestructible villain. And nothing can kill the hero, though for the first three quarters of the story, he, rarely ever she, suffers grievously and appears hopelessly doomed until, miraculously, the hero breaks free, vanquishes the villain, and restores order until the next episode. But nothing finally destroys the villain or prevents their reappearance, whether the villain is soundedly trounced, jailed, drowned, or shot into outer space. <laughs> so this storyline makes it so that the hero's violence is always justified. It's always needed. It's always required in order to bring peace, in order to chaos. And the villain, that villain is always needed. It's always, has to, always has to remain a threat. Just on the outside, could return at any moment because it justifies the domination that the empire brings, that the hero brings. Are you following me still? Are you following me? Okay. Because this is not a new story, people. Hollywood did not invent it. They perfected it. <laughs> this story has been told by every single dominant culture throughout history. I mean, it's been told by uh, Babylonian myths, uh, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, Chinese, German, Russian, you name it. I just happen to think that we Americans have perfected it. Walter Wink says this, in short, the myth of redemptive violence, violence that saves, is the story of the victory of order over chaos by means of violence. It's the ideology of conquest. It's the, the original religion of the status quo. Because the gods favor those who conquer, and conversely, whoever conquers must have the favor of the gods. Religion of the empire exists to legitimate power and privilege, peace through war, security through strength. Does this sound familiar? We all know this story. These are the core convictions and they form um, 
a religious belief. And you know how they're most effectively learned and passed on and embedded in us? Through telling stories. Through telling stories. And so we witness it over and over again. Hundreds and thousands of times we witness it. We binge this story episode after episode. And when that storyline has changed just a little bit, something just doesn't feel right. Whoa, what? Wait a second. We get unnerved. Kind of like when here comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Jesus lived a different story than the myth of redemptive violence. He, he was not a story about, his was not a story about creating peace through war. His was not a story where just at the last minute he escapes death. He comes down off the cross and obliterates his enemies. <laughs> That's not his story. I mean, here's a picture uh, of how the myth of redemptive violence sees the Jesus story. And remember, those around him even said it. They said, why don't you just save yourself? You've got the power to do it, don't you? But that's not the Jesus story. Jesus enters the domination story of our world and he flips it on its head. Jesus didn't look at the political and religious leaders like those jeering crowds and those Roman soldiers who murdered him and determine as all redemptive violence concludes, well, my enemy is irredeemable, and therefore, I just got to destroy him. Rather, Jesus looked at them as he was being murdered, and Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Because for Jesus, there is no such thing, no such thing, as an irredeemable enemy. Rather than return evil for evil, Jesus rather died for his enemy than destroy others and save himself. What wondrous love is this, people? And it's the only way out of the loop that our world is trapped in. Because violence can never stop violence, Wink says. Violence can never stop violence because its very success leads others to imitate it. Oof. Jesus says, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. But, but if a seed dies and is buried in the ground, then it bears much fruit. What a mystery. What a rare story, people. So this sermon here, it's really just a trailer for a very rare and strange story that we're going to tell in its entirety on Friday night. And I hope you can join us for it. It's at 7 p.m. this Good Friday. And as you hear, as you're a witness to this story, I hope that you become unnerved. That is fitting. Please do become unnerved. Because you're going to witness a story about Jesus entering all the pain of humanity, all of your pain. And that very place that we assume is 
utterly God-forsaken, God-abandoned that place of pain, there is the discovery that it's exactly that place where God's presence and God's self-offering love are on full display. That God's power is and always has been in empathy and service to the other. And it's this love of God in Jesus that, I mean, it looks absurd. It looks weak. Yet, it's always surprisingly where the world is saved. It's always surprisingly where, where God is raising us from the dead. Amen. There's a world at war, caught in suffering, silent casualties, oh God grant us peace. In these sleepless nights, I can hardly breathe, despite brutality, I know that we'll be free. Just to see.